putting the neighbor back in neighborhood. We have Jarrell Jones, who's the co-founder of Renew Birmingham, coming in to talk about a biblical philosophy of revitalization that's going on in Birmingham. But first, we hear his incredible testimony uh, of redemption, his entire life story, and it is one of the most engaging, interesting conversations we've had on this podcast. We have an incredible culture here in the state of Alabama, but our politics and public policy don't reflect the people of Alabama. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News and host of this here podcast, where we are in pursuit of a free and flourishing Alabama every single week. We have an incredible episode for you guys today. We have uh, Mr. Jarrell Jones, who's the co-founder of Renew Birmingham. It's a ministry that empowers residents to get invested in their own revitalization. Um, really interesting work they're doing, really important work they're doing. And so, um, but beyond that, I've heard uh, from some very close friends of mine that he has an incredible testimony uh, of redemption and prison that sounds kind of similar to mine. Uh, and so I wanted to get him on to hear his story, have him talk about Renew Birmingham. Um, and then we will, in the overtime segment, uh, get his thoughts as someone who is heavily invested in uh, renewing, um, you know, neighborhoods and things like that, uh, as something we always talk about on the show, what is the importance of, of manhood and fatherhood in that uh, sphere and space and just get his thoughts on that. So we'll be doing that. Uh, and before we jump into that, though, I want to tell you guys, please, whatever podcasting platform you're getting this on, listening to, watching, whether you're video, audio, or whatever, uh, subscribe to it, like it, follow it, whatever that button is on your podcasting app, do that so that you're um, getting notifications, click the bell if there's a bell that's required to click to get notifications so you're not missing out on any content. We would hate for that to happen. Uh, and then, um, but yeah, and then please share this on social media. That's the way that we reach more and more people uh, as people, um, you know, see that you know, word of mouth is how podcasts grow. Joe Rogan never spent any money on marketing. It was word of mouth that grew him into a 50 million download, you know, per episode guy. I mean, that's pretty, I don't know if we're going to hit that, but word of mouth, you guys can help us do that. So please do. And also, uh, if you like the content, if you like the work 1819 News is doing, uh, become a member. Membership start as little as $5 a month. Go to the website, 1819news.com. Click the become a member button and do that today. All right. Back to the content or beginning the content. Um, so Jarrell Jones, co-founder of Renew Birmingham. Uh, you kind of heard a little bit about what I, I, I want to talk to you about. One, one of the things we just about do with almost everyone who comes in here, I'm interested in, in people's stories. Uh, I love stories. And um, everybody has a different and unique one, but I always find that there is actually a lot of similarities to even in, in stories that could be radically different. Um, and so want to hear your story. Where were you born? Where you grew up? Um, you know, how did you get in trouble? How did you get out of trouble? Uh, and how did you get I to was, Renew Birmingham? I was born in Birmingham, Alabama, so okay. I was born in trouble. Yes. Right? You know, so uh, when, when people think of Birmingham, oftentimes we don't think of it uh, in the context that it was developed. But my family came from Camden on one side and Opelika on the other out of slavery okay. through Jim Crow uh, and came to Birmingham. Uh, it was a post-Civil War get an yeah. city. Uh, 1871, it pops up around the steel mill. Everything is about steel and getting yeah. workers to do that. And so, you know, the convict leasing and all those horrible stories yeah. about, you know, arresting people and then forcing them to work. So my family was in the middle of that and uh, got jobs at U.S. Steel and, and the pipe companies and things like that. But they were undereducated, uh, poorly informed, poorly socialized. They had yeah. been oppressed most of their lives. So they didn't have a whole lot to give to uh, their children. Uh, my mother was trafficked by her parents, uh, grandparents. Uh, it's kind of, you know, not like, you, you know, um, uh, old school pimping, yeah. but the, and this was a cultural thing for not just them. It was many people, you know, men had money and uh, women were working in white people's homes, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, there were other ways to get money when you didn't have necessarily the education or the resources to do that. So, you know, when I talk about these things, I want to talk about them, not in the context of, of being victims, but in, yeah. in informing people of how sure. culture develops in underserved communities. So I'm born in 1967, uh, May 1st. In fact, Elvis was married that day. A lot of people don't know, but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, two momentous uh, yeah. things happened that day. But um, it was uh, Inslee. Uh, I was born in Lord Nolan Hospital, and, and all my family was, uh, you know, basically in Inslee, which is the west side of Birmingham, which historically has been considered one of the uh, 
more challenging parts of Birmingham. And so uh, coming up in in poverty, you know, my mother wasn't uh, all that she needed to be. She's 15 years old when she got pregnant with me by a drug addict and alcoholic who was a uh, uh, quote unquote good man. In, yeah. in according to that sliding scale, yeah. you know, he, he worked at Birmingham Country Club as a mater d, uh, took care of his family. You know, he was a, he was a good guy. Uh, today he would probably be considered a pedophile, but yeah. um, the culture was different sure. at that time. So you you know you can't necessarily ascribe that to him. Uh, but uh, the relationship between he and my mother was not one that she wanted to stay with because he did pills, he did drugs. Yeah. And so she wanted to marry security. So she did. Uh, she married a soldier uh, whose mother was 12 years old when she had him and gave him to her older sister, uh, who's a, what we call a, a pissy drunk. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, she raised him in a shotgun house in Smithfield. Uh, Smithfield is famous for having Dynamite Hill, you know, so j- just to paint the picture of the environment that sure. they were coming up. I mean, he was ra- being raised in a shotgun house, went to Parker High School. Well, for my audience that may not know, what is a shotgun house? Shotgun house is one that you can see from the front door all the way through the back door. If you shot a shotgun through it, go all the way through, go it. all the way through. Gotcha. Right. So okay. it's uh, basically a two room uh, house. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, it would, those, those were stacked right up on top of each other because those were like worker villages you yeah. know, basically. And so, um, you know, the culture that developed out of those was never going to be a healthy, you know, couldn't possibly have been a healthy culture in the middle of, yeah. of the oppression. Back then, black lives didn't matter at all. You could literally kill a black person without ha- any consequence. It didn't matter if you were black or white, anybody. Yeah. You know, I have several people who killed people in my family, never served a day in jail back then. So it was, um, you know, a, a step up, she thought, to marry the soldier. But he had his own issues. And, yeah, uh, she had her issues. And then on top of that, I'm born legally blind. Right. So uh, that represented a set of challenges that nobody really knew because I was seven years old before anybody figured out that I couldn't see. And by that time, I had traveled to Germany. I had, you know, learned a couple of languages, not completely, but, uh, you know, that that type of uh, movement. Every couple of years, uh, you you get a kind of an eclectic acculturation. Uh, and uh, when I got uh, I, well, I tell people this, that my hippocampus is probably larger than most people's because memory was so important to me as a young, yeah. quote unquote, blind boy going to school, first grade. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, it was important for me to memorize sounds, memorize shapes because I was walking to school. You yeah. Know? When I say legally blind, what I mean is that without these contact lenses or glasses, everything is a blur. Sure. You know, it's just shapes moving around. So. Um, but again, seven years old, I was seven years old in second grade in Fort Rucker, Alabama, before anybody figured that out. And by that time I had been molested. I had been, uh, neglected, you know, those things that happen when you have, um, an unsafe environment for a child to grow up in. And I'm an only child. So, but my, my, uh, parents were very attentive to be getting education. You know, they, they, they may not have had a whole lot of other stuff to give, but they were, they were. Uh, of the mind that if you got knowledge and you went, went to school, that you would do well. So um, I can remember uh, as a small child having this machine, you know, and, and again, memory, again, played a major pro, uh, part in how I would progress. And when I got second grade, uh, they discovered that my eyes were bad and I got glasses, which brought on a whole nother set of issues with self-esteem because the glasses were really, really yeah. thick. And, uh, you know, then I've had these lips all my life. It, it took me 30 years to grow into them. So, you know, in our community, <laughs> in our community you know, it's, it's um, self-esteem is not a thing that we promote as much, uh, you yeah. know, back then. Anyway, you know, we, we still, you know, we have whole television shows about making fun of each other. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, you had to develop a tough skin. Of course, sure. I, that was during a period of time. Though that we played on steel slides and merry-go-rounds yeah. and, you know, kids were a lot tougher you yeah. know, back then. You know, we ate off the ground, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Kiss it to God, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff. But um, anyway, going through school, uh, traveling every couple of years, moving from one place to another. I ultimately ended up graduating high school in Mannheim, Germany. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. So I lived in Mannheim, Germany in 92, 93, 94. Shut your mouth. I graduated in Mannheim in 85. Benjamin Franklin Village? Benjamin Franklin Village. What? Live right there. Wow. Eugene Strahan was my father's commanding officer, uh, my stepfather's commanding officer, and Chris and I were seniors together. And Michael, the famous Michael Strahan, didn't even play football at that time. So yeah, That's funny. What years were you there? I graduated in 85. 85. So I was there in 84 and 85. I went to Fort Knox High School for three years before that. And my father was being, my stepdad was being court-martialed. Yeah. 
And so Mannheim was where the jail was at. So sure. we had orders to go to uh, Holland, and then they changed them when he he had a dope habit. And yeah. uh, back then they didn't consider it a mental health issue, and so the army just kicked him out. Court wow. kicked him out. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. So I like, already knew our paths yeah, were yeah, somewhat yeah, similar. Yeah, yeah. And then we go through Benjamin Franklin Village a few years yeah. apart too. That's wild. I was only, I think I was seven, eight, and nine in those years okay. when I was there. So I was my mom joined the army. Okay, and so she got yeah. we got Benjamin Franklin Village is where I spent a few years of my life. Yeah, so. well, I was eight. I was eighteen, seventeen, and eighteen. So you know, it was wild. And, yeah. and I was senior class president and who's who among American high school students. I was yeah. I was a gifted. Uh-huh. Uh, academic, if you will, but uh, I had a lot of turmoil inside. My mother was the first person to put a gun to my head. This was in in, uh, in Mannheim. Now, again, I don't say this stuff with malice. I just, yeah. I'm saying no, this. No, it's in information. Of, it's data points. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And so, yeah. It was it was difficult to cope with that because yeah. it was a situation where that I wasn't in the wrong and, and I wasn't, you know, robbing and killing people and, and uh, you know, the things that I would do later. But um, it, it, it solidified that I could not trust adults. Yeah, with my well-being. And so um, in my mind, you know, I was going to do what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to go to college. I had a bag full of academic scholarship offers to schools I had never heard of. Uh, if it wasn't University of Alabama or Georgia, yeah. I didn't want to be it. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to play ball. I wasn't, I wasn't big enough to play ball. I wrestled. Yeah. Actually, I was European wrestling champion. I did play on the state championship football team. But I was a little guy, yeah, and uh, you know about 160 pounds. Uh, wrestled at 145, right? So you know how that goes. You have to fight and weight. But getting out of uh, getting out of Germany when when he was court martialed, we came back to the states in '85, and I immediately left yeah. and uh, got involved in drug use and and uh, you know all the deviance that a young person. I moved to Daytona Beach, Florida, with a a woman who was 20 years older than me, and. Um, she introduced me to things that I probably should never have been. In, well, yes, she yeah. should never have been introduced to. Yeah. And I was green, yeah. uh, but it, that was that was the beginning of my drug and, and crime lifestyle. In 1987, I committed an armed robbery in Florida. Three counts of, I'm charged with two counts of armed robbery, commissioned a fellow with a firearm and carrying a concealed firearm. Uh, got a really, really good break uh, in that system in Florida. Um, got an escape case uh, from a work release center. At the end of that sentence, I was sentenced to three years, ultimately. And then um, in uh, 1990, I got out and moved to Georgia with that woman. And uh, back on dope, you know, really feeling like I was three strikes and out of the game. You know, you're young, you're black, yeah. you're convicted. You know, I didn't know. I literally did not have enough information to, to think that I could possibly be a success. So I was back into a life of crime. Yeah. And uh, drugs, and uh, in 1992, I came to Birmingham to get myself together under the auspices of a police officer, a white police officer in Fayetteville, Georgia, who had arrested me in Georgia for a domestic dispute, uh, and just kind of followed me along, you know, trying to help me. And that story, you can see that story. On matter of fact, I sold that O'Brien. Actually, there's a whole video about that relationship, but. Uh, he took this interest in me that I thought was really strange that a white cop from Fayetteville, Georgia would be interested. I was, you know, a known violent criminal. Yeah. But uh, he, it didn't matter to him. He would, he had arrested me and then I got out and then uh, he would pull the, whenever he saw me on the street, he knew I'm doing wrong. He'd pull up, hit the lights and, and uh, pat me down uh, and start talking to me. Sometimes he'd be talking to me about Jesus and I'd be like, you mean the white guy on the wall at my great grandmother's house? That, yeah. That's going to save me. Right. You know? And so, um, honestly, I thought that maybe there was something else that he was trying to do. Right. But, uh, at, at any rate, whenever you're talking to the police in the hood and you're not going to the jail, then you got to be snitching. Yeah. So he would stop me regularly. Yeah. And, and not take, no, I'm dirty. Yeah. Right. But not take me to jail. He just wanted to talk to me about putting my life together. Uh, this, this, by the way, Dana Marsh is one of the most wonderful human beings in the world. Um, and we're still very good friends today. So this is what happens. He, he gives me a bus ticket. I tell him, Hey, I got to get out of here because it's hot now. Everybody yeah. thinks I'm a snitch. Right. Yeah. So he gives me a bus ticket, sends me to Birmingham and I come to stay with my great grandmother. And she had a husband who was one of the pedophiles that, um, you know, had experiences with my mother and, and uh, yeah. so on and so forth. I never liked the man and I can't attribute anything to him doing something. I don't remember that. I just remember yeah. just 
despised him. And so now I was grown. And so uh, we had a conflict. He threatened me and I stabbed him to death and had a spiritual experience immediately afterwards. I got away with the homicide. Uh, nobody was looking for me. Nobody could put me in the room. No, you know, it wasn't. I got away. You know? yeah. But my conscience, if you will, and, and I talk about it as, as an experience with God because I didn't believe in the God of religion Sure. at that point. In my mind, religion was the reason for everything wrong. And yeah. everybody had a God that told them, go take somebody's land, yeah. go oppress these people because they're cursed. And yeah. so I was like, you know, <laughs> it just didn't make anthropological sense to me yeah. that the God of these churches and, and uh, mass mosques and, and temples, it, it just didn't make any sense to me. And so, um, but I knew there was a God though. You know, science told me that there was sure. eternity and that, that intelligent design had to be behind this. It was the logical conclusion. So I prayed and I hitchhiked all the way back to Atlanta and I found this police officer, called him and told him, hey, I just killed a man. And of course, he called Birmingham and they weren't looking for me. And I had to give him details. And I did. And uh, I was arrested and brought to Birmingham. And I went to trial. Uh, now I went to trial because they, they were offering me life or life without parole. And mm. in my mind. Ain't no difference. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah. You know, so yep. go to trial. You know, and he testified at my trial. He sent me bond money. Right when I first, yeah, crazy, crazy. Um, and he stayed with me through 20 years of uh, growth and development. And how I came to Christ was really educational. I, uh, you know, I don't mind telling you today that I thought that to be a Christian was like the stupidest thing that you could possibly. Yeah, maybe, I felt you, the same why way. Why would you do this? Yeah. Right. You know, so um, I was in a treatment program. And uh, it, it had the 12 steps and, and things like that. And I was really on a journey to figure out. So this is in prison. This is in prison. So real quick, back up. So you went to trial. Yeah. How did the trial go? Or did they come at you with a plea in the middle of the trial or what? No. They, so what happened was the armed robberies that I told you about before. Yeah. So I'm. this is why they were offering me life without, I mean, life or life without. First of all, they couldn't give me the death penalty because even the, there was no felony in commission with the homicide. So if I had robbed him, then they could give you the death penalty, you know, capital murder, right? That's how you qualify capital murder. Yeah. In this case, it wasn't really clear why I killed him other than what I said is that he threatened me. I killed him, right? Yeah. So I'm the only witness. Uh, so they said, okay, well, you've got these history, this history of violent crimes. So there's a law in Alabama called the 446, and it's the uh, Habitual Offender Act. I had six felonies. I right, have right, that in right, Colorado right. too. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and it's an interesting story about how yeah. those things came about and yeah. the timing of those laws, uh, right on the edge of the Iran Contra cocaine affair. But that's yeah. a whole nother podcast. Yeah. Right? That's right. We'll bring you back. <laughs> right, but um, so so they're telling me they're gonna you know sentence me out of the four four six and give me life without parole, and I'm like life life without parole, whatever yeah. you know. So, um, but I was repentant. I, I, I felt. Guilty about what I had sure. done. Now, understand, it wasn't so much about the man as it was about the act, right? Yeah. I had no um, uh, affinity for that person and the things that he had done and, and, and uh, that, but I was ashamed of what I had done and what I had, of what I had become, just yeah. overwhelmed with guilt and shame, wanted to die, you, you know, slit my wrist while I was in, in jail, incarcerated, just, just full of this... I was at my bottom. Yeah. And I think that turning myself in was accepted by God as surrender, that I was sure. willing to be somebody else. And so the born again process began without me really knowing, yeah. you know, all the details of the acceptance of Christ and, you know, overcoming of guilt and shame. I just didn't want to be who I was. And so uh, I, in this treatment program, so I get this, I get this sentence because they couldn't use the 446 because I pled no contest to the charges and, and there's a glitch or there's a little uh, window or uh, 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 what do you call it? What's the word you use? You, you, uh, loophole. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. So yeah. the, so the law requires that you have a guilty plea or, yeah. or you be convicted in trial. If you have a NOLO contender plea, yeah. then it can't be used to enhance your sentence under the four, four, six. So I looked at it, you know, I look back, I look at it. God knew 
what he was going to do with me way back then, because the way that I ended up pleading no contest to the robberies was uh, I had a defense that I had formulated through study of the law and so on and so forth. And I knew that armed robbery or any type of crime like that had to be intent to commit. There's a, there's a legal phrase intent to commit. And so I was saying that I was so high on crack that I didn't intend to do any of this. And my history supported that senior class president, bag full of academic scholarship offers, good kid communicates well, right? You know, this shouldn't be, Right, yeah. happening. And so people, you know, were, the prosecution was like, they didn't want to go to trial with me on that because yeah. you sit me in front of a jury yeah, and you you say, this kid's a horrible person and so on and so forth. But his history says no. And he's saying that he would, he, uh, if you have a blackout and you commit a crime like this, yeah. you can't be convicted. Yeah. So I was saying it was a quote unquote whiteout, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I don't think that that was true. Right. But you it gotta, was You're fighting for your life, man. Fighting for you my life. Get it. Right. But uh, that was that was 1987, 88. And uh, so now it was all the way here in 93, 92. 90, I committed the crime. 93 were being uh, in, uh, tried. And uh, I'm saying that um, uh, I'm going to go to trial. And, and they didn't research it. This is what happened. They didn't research my, you know, they're supposed to do a pre-sentence in, uh, investigation. PSI. PSI yeah. Right. So in the PSI, they didn't get the disposition of the case. They just had that I had been convicted, right? So when it came to the after the trial loss, now they got to do an in-depth PSI. They find that these no low contender pleas, they're only going to be able to give me life anyway, right? So that's how I ended up getting a life sentence. So I go to prison. This life sentence, West Jefferson. Go ahead. What What is it? So every state does things differently. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the way Colorado worked is basically – you had life, which meant I mean, it was basically life without, which was life without the possibility of parole right? or death, right? So it was death penalties at the highest and life uh-huh. without. And then under that was kind of 48. And so life with is 48. Yeah. Life without is you're yeah. never getting out no matter what. You're just not, we're not going to kill you. Right. So what, how did, how does that translate to, to so Alabama? So life, Alabama's sentencing structure is uh, different. Life with the possibility of parole means nothing. Yeah. Doesn't mean anything. The possibility of parole is not a real thing. There is no um, uh, standard. There is no qualification that you can meet. If they decide to let you go, they do. If they don't decide to let you go, they don't. Life without parole means that you don't have an opportunity to get out. Right. And of course, there's a death penalty. But in this case, I was sentenced to life with the opportunity for parole. However, because of my criminal history, and I think that because the justice system felt like they, you know, whiffed on, you know, they, they yeah. uh, spent a bunch of money in trial and, and so on and so forth. They intended to keep me, you know, forever. And there, there are guys that are doing life sentences now that have been up for parole 15, 20 times. And they're just not going to let them go because the law won't require them to let them go after they've yeah. accomplished them. So I go and I got this newfound faith. And I'm excited about this, this Jesus now that I've started reading about, which was really interesting because, you know, I had to go through the, the gamut of, of, um, what I call, you know, charlatans, right? You know, there were a bunch of them. Well, it was the name it and claim it era. And so, you know, you're in prison and people are telling you to speak to these fences and God wants you to be free and, you know, they're telling you all this, Get like G, like God is, I call it Santa Christ and Jesus Claus. Like you yeah. know, God is. Genie Jesus. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm with it because I want out of prison and yeah. I'm going to be good now, God. And, and uh, you know, and, and, and I'd heard about jailhouse religion. Yeah. But the more I learned, it's interesting because the guys in prison that had these religious experiences, I don't think that they were disingenuous the more I, I, you know, observe them. What I think is that they're given bad information. And I've been on record as saying that prison ministry, uh, in many cases, is the worst thing happening to <laughs> young Christians. Yeah. And, and part of the reason for that is you get like 30 different ministries come in. This guy's Methodist, this guy's yeah. Baptist, this is Catholic, this is. The, and so you're forcing a congregation that you could have cohesive. You're forcing them to divide and choose who they're going to follow. Somebody's going to say that the baptism of the Holy Ghost is of the devil. Somebody's going to say you're not yeah. saved enough if you don't have you're the baptism. Just like, yeah. 
what do you do when you're a young Christian? Oh, yeah. Just keep saying, you got, you know, Kenneth Copeland and saying, name it and claim it and, yeah. and confess it and possess it. And so, you know, it's just a lot of, lot of confusion. And a lot of the guys that would be leaders in these environments don't get the opportunity because if you're free and you're coming in, you have like automatic credibility yeah. with, with inmates. And the truth is that many ministries send their least qualified people to go preach sure. because they don't want them preaching in their churches. So they send yeah, them to prison. That's the mission field, period. You're, you're sending yeah. your least prepared people to, <laughs> yeah. to, to minister to the people that need it the most. It's yeah. like completely backwards, right? So anyway. <laughs> I never thought about it that way. But, you know, uh, yeah, it, it, in my experience when I was in there, it was, it was a cornucopia of backgrounds and they had Kairos. And so Kairos, it would come in and you would literally have, well, the Bible's not entirely true <laughs> with the Pentecostal who's fighting mad and then the Catholic yeah, guy. Yeah. And they're like, we're in there supposed yeah. to be learning and they're like having doctrinal, you know, debates and stuff. And then someone would be like, hey, part of Kairos is we can't have doctrinal yeah. debates. So let's bring, you <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I was, I was blessed by a lot of it, but it, but it is interesting yeah. your, your take on that. Cause I yeah. can see that. So I had the opportunity by the grace of God to be in some of the best environments in Alabama to actually learn uh, the word. And, and I started doing that and please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that I'm an authority on what God is saying or who God is or, yeah. or what, what I'm saying is that I learned some things that I felt like were beneficial to me and to other people and are still being beneficial in my community. Uh, but reading was important. So I want you to imagine this. I tell you as a young person that the most important words in your life are in this book, right? And then I don't read this book with you. But, but I give you this book and it's in a foreign language. Yeah. King's English, right? Yeah. Dead language. I, I still, I'm 56 years old. I've been reading, but I still don't know what a cockatrice is. I'm sure that I looked it up yeah. at, at some point, right? But you know, the, the point is to do that is so counterintuitive. It, it's like if you're trying to grow somebody, why would you not give them this in the land? I thought that God actually spoke like, you know, in the book, the movie, The Ten Commandments, the yeah. Moses, God yeah. thus saith the Lord. And, and so you grow up thinking about this stuff. So I started um, going to this before before I started reading the scripture. What got me was, was remember what I said is that, that religious people are crazy, yeah. right? So that's that's in my mind. But I ran across this quote in the AA in the Big Book, sure, and uh, it was Herbert Spencer, and uh, it stuck with me forever. I don't know who Herbert Spencer was, what he wrote, what he did, other than this. There is a principle which is proof against all argument and a bar against all information and cannot fail but to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. It is contempt prior to investigation. That blew my mind because up to that point, I was just arrogantly saying these religious people are stupid. Yeah. Well, how could you possibly? This is fairy tales. Walk on water, right? Belly of a whale. Come on, bro. You know, yeah. are we serious right here? Yeah. All right. So God made a bet with the devil, and Job ends up suffering. Come on, none yeah. of this stuff makes any sense. So I had not read the book, though. I had just depended on my observation of other Christians. And, uh, you know, jailhouse religion, I was sure came from out here. It wasn't it wasn't something that was invented in jail. People just came to prison and did what they were doing out here, because, in my opinion, people of faith didn't really care about Christians or, or being Christian or being like Christ. I mean, you could you couldn't develop a nation like this or a, a culture like this and that be the truth. Right. So, you know, you got, you're dealing yeah. with a black guy, you know, who, you know, studied the history of mass baptisms and and uh, the witch trials of Salem. And it's like, you know, are you telling me that that this is real stuff? Yeah. So but again, I hadn't read the book. So when that Herbert Spencer quote hit me, I was like, OK, I got to read these books. Right. To get to be qualified, in my opinion, I got to read these books. Yeah. So I delve in first thing. King's English, this book's not written in this, it's written in Hebrew and Greek. So now I got to study Hebrew and Greek. I got time. I got a life sentence. <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? So now I got to study Hebrew and I got to study Greek and I got to study culture to get proper context for what is actually being said here and why it's actually being yeah. said. So I delve into it for 20 years. And uh, as I continue to grow, I realized that, well, early on, I realized that this Jesus is real. He's a, he's a real entity. He, he, this idea of him being God 
right? It, it resonated with me because the idea that we're created in God's image meant that we had power to be creative, to create our environment, to, to, there is an intelligent design behind this. I have to give it an identity and it has to be bigger than me and it has to be purpose in it. And so I'm reading and uh, the more I do, it made sense to me that Jesus was the example, not only the, of the salvation from my guilt and shame uh, by sacrifice, but also the example of what a healthy human being looks like in a broken world. Yeah. And so that's what I wanted to be. I would continue to be denied parole. And so I said, okay, God wants me to, you know, he didn't do this to me, right? I did this to me, but he wants me to affect my community. And so Jesus, there were three things that uh, I felt like were really important that we incorporate in our organization now. One is that uh, he did not bite off the whole city. Or the whole country, the whole sure, world, yeah, right. Localism. Stay in Israel, right? And he canvassed it. He aggressively pursued clients. He walked. He went from door to door, if you will, right, evangelizing, but providing resources along the way. And the third thing, although I had learned that salvation was free, this free gift, in my study, what I learned was it was more the opportunity that was free. You couldn't earn. But if you took advantage of the opportunity, then it was going to cost you everything. everything. And along the way, I read, um, you know, one of, the, one of the significant books that really turned my life around was Viktor Frankl's um, uh, Man's Search for Me. Yep. And I had visited Auschwitz. I mean, Dachau, not Auschwitz, but Dachau when I was on a senior trip when yeah. I was in Germany. So I had that experience with being able to put my hands on the Holocaust experience. Yeah. Of course, being black, you have that Holocaust experience in your genes and, and you're looking around that. So, uh, but the thing that he had emphasized was the selfless service to other people that while he was, you know, got a death sentence. Yeah. And so here I was in prison with a captive audience with a death sentence. How was I going to survive it with sanity intact? I had to have purpose. Find I meaning in the suffering. Had to find meaning in the suffering. Yeah. Right. I read that book too when I was in prison, which is another, <laughs> it just keeps on. Dude. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, but then, uh, I realized that, uh, you know, the cost of discipleship, which was a Dietrich Bonhoeffer yeah. piece, uh, which was amazing to me because it was counter to everything that I was learning about contemporary Christianity, yeah. this idea that you were going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow. If you, if any man come, Bonhoeffer said, if, 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 when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Who signs up for that? Yeah. Nobody says, I'm going to walk up to the altar and die for, you know, yeah. so, and then I found out as I continue to study that, you know, walk up to the altar, repeat after me. It's not in the book. I couldn't not find it. There. I couldn't find it. It's like, yeah. so I went to seminary school, right? To another foray into trying to understand this contemporary yeah. Christianity and why it seems so contrary to what was actually in the book. And, um, it had some, some merit, uh, yeah. I call it cemetery school right? because yeah. most of it has a denominational bent that's going to lead to divisiveness versus yeah. unity. And I think that we see that in our, sure. in our 700 churches in the city of Birmingham, yeah. 700 Every churches, 197,000 people. We got yeah. 700 churches yeah. and we're number one in homicides, top five in blight and at the bottom of the education spectrum. Don't forget okay. by divorce and everything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keep on going. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. I'm going through this process, this educational process, and and I'm, I'm wanting to be effective as a healthy person in prison. And so we started building communities. In 1997, I went over to help reconstruct a, the crime bill program at Donaldson Maximum Security Prison. And um, at the same time, the faith dorms were an idea that was budding. Ben Sherrod uh, went to the warden and said, hey, we need to take these guys out of Kairos and be able to put them in a dorm where they don't have to deal with the population. But we, it has to have some type of structure. So I was brought on to add uh, the New Outlook Therapeutic Community Structure, which was a therapeutic community. Yeah, I went get, to Pier 1. Was where I, When I got out of prison, I went to Pier 1, which was outpatient or inpatient, outpatient, two-year yeah. therapeutic community. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So I learned everything I could about that while I was going through the therapy, the TC yeah. program and became kind of a thought of as a prodigy because I was soaking this stuff up. Yeah. I, you got to remember, I'm studying anthropology, sociology, history, everything I can. Church All history. R.E.B.T. and C.B.T. through TC, right? Yeah. That, Rational motor behavioral right, therapy. Right, right, right. Cognitive therapy. behavioral therapy. Yeah, yeah. All that. 
But the other things was, were, that were really kind of grounding my understanding were simple anthropology. And not because anthropologists had everything right. They had a lot wrong. Yeah. Right. But there were some things about community and human beings that were just uh, glaring. Right. Human beings need community to be healthy. Divisiveness among human beings is never going to be is never going to work out right. It, 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 if you if you don't have cohesion, then you won't have health. And so when I'm looking at Jesus and I'm looking at him, go to the people that are the least healthy and create cohesion among them to affect the rest of the world. Well, that makes sense because I'm only as strong as a nation as my weakest link. Yeah. I'm only as strong as a as a company as my weakest employee. Right. You know, yeah. so so it made sense to me. These things just started, you know, coming together. So the grace of God was big. Uh, on me. And at that point, I was starting to share these concepts that were, um, you know, complex for a lot of people. I became an elder in the church and I stopped doing altar calls and start doing discipleship calls. Amen. And I explained that the reason I'm doing not doing altar calls is because I don't see it in the book. Right. If it was in the book, I do it. Right. You know, and I started recruiting guys and doing mentoring uh, discipleship as yeah. I saw it in the Bible, not just a class where you come and fill in some blanks or a, a Sunday school where you, you know, you you get this uh, pre-recorded yeah. <laughs> thing from some state or country that Ministry you don't need or something. Right, yeah. right. Right. So we started building communities and we called them faith dorms. And, um, you know, they don't they didn't operate exactly according to the way that. I wanted them to operate, but I was able to help write state policy for that in 2000, working for the uh, state chaplaincy coordinator at that time was a man named Steve Walker. And so um, after that, uh, basically, I got continued to get denied parole. But this is how I ended up getting out. This is the miracle. Yeah. So I changed my whole, you know, I, I, I became an elder in the church. And like I said, I stopped doing altar calls, started doing mentoring. When I started mentoring Right. Pulling guys. It didn't matter. They could be white, black, blue, green, gay, straight. Didn't matter. If you want to be in the space of somebody who is interested in your health, because now it was just like, hey, I'm not here for me. Right. And and I, when I say this, I want people to understand I'm not telling you that I'm the most selfless person in the world. That is not what I'm saying at all. Sure. Right? What I'm saying is that I was in a situation where I had a captive audience and I needed purpose in that I needed if I was going to die in prison. I needed to have a reason to be here beyond eating three meals a day and playing basketball and watching movies and yeah. uh, that kind of stuff. So affecting these guys was important to me. Mentoring brought me upon a guy from Springville, Alabama. Uh, his name was Eric Wanniger. And Eric was involved with the Aryan Brotherhood. Um, so he was a qualified white supremacist. Right. Sure. And they had moved him up outside my door from home in prison because they were doing renovations. And he was watching me do discipleship with these kids, these young people, yeah. I say kids, these young people. And he walked up to me and he said, hey, man, I've been watching you. And he looked down his nose at me. He literally looked down his nose at me. Say, hey, man, I've been watching you. What type game you running? Now, he's from Springville, Alabama. So he's yeah. a country boy. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I kind of laughed. He says, I grew up in church all my life. I ain't never heard none of this stuff you talking about. So I got him his Bible and we sat down and I walked him through it. This kid broke down. He says, I don't understand how I've never seen this before. My brother is an elder in the church. My brother-in-law is a pastor of the church. And uh, I don't understand how I've not seen this before. You got to meet my folks. My brother told me that a black man was going to bring me back to Christ. Now, remember, he's white, white supremacist. supremacist. Yeah. So I meet his brother and, and his mother at a family day. And uh, his brother looked at me. Now, I got these thick glasses on because I can't wear contact lenses in prison. Yeah. His brother looked at me. He says, you're the guy I saw in, in my vision five years ago. Right, right, right. So I get goosebumps. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, cause, but I'm like, yeah, I'm excited. I'm on the right path. If, you know, the prophet of God is coming and saying, hey, yeah. you know, I saw you in a vision. You're in the right place. And uh, so we started developing. I was like the Apostle Paul, if you will. I'm writing yeah. letters and, and sharing my insights. He's sharing his yeah. insights. We developed this relationship. Uh, Eric gets out of prison. He's doing well. And uh, Eric, uh, uh, Doug is the brother. Doug, two years after, I've been in Iperol five times at this point. Doug says, God wants me to help you get out of prison. And I'm like. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> sounds good. Yeah. But I've been denied parole five times, bro. Yeah. The, the attorney general protests yeah. my parole. Troy King and all whoever was yeah. was next. They would all protest. The DA protests. The victims of crime and leniency protest. So I'm not going anywhere. I 
you know, two counts of robbery, committed a felony with firearm, carrying a sealed firearm, homicide, escape. <laughs> You're not going Stuck anywhere. Like Chuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've been praying to God. Why wouldn't he tell me he was going to let me out of prison? Yeah. But I, you know, I was appreciative. I said, yeah, praise the Lord. Uh, amen, bro. We, we just going to keep on praying. So a couple years later, I go up for parole. It just so happens that his family lawyer was a former state senator and um, claimed, uh, uh, you know, professed Christian. And I don't know what happened. I can't tell you what happened, um, but I do know that I went up for parole the sixth time and the parole board acted like they were my family, like they couldn't wait for me to get home. Same protests. And they let me out. Wow. That was 2012. That would be cool enough, right? I told you that police officer, he's been with me the whole time. What cool. year do you think I got out of prison? 2012. 2012. <laughs> yeah. October 29th, 2012, I walk out of prison. Okay, so I told you the police officer stayed, you know, yeah. with me the whole yeah. time. So now he's no longer a police officer at this point. I can't get a job. I leave out of prison with $42 and a bus ticket. It's $2 a year. That's what your retirement is after 20 yeah. years in prison. And I go to this halfway house. So I'm shoveling pig crap to pay rent yeah. at this like farm they, they yeah. got here with chickens and pigs. And, and you know, it, it's Tuscaloosa somewhere. It's actually it's Ralph, Alabama. I couldn't find Ralph, <laughs> Alabama right now, bro. If you gave me a million dollars, say, go find Ralph. Alabama. I got the GPS. You know, I got it. I can't find it. Yeah. Right. So I'm there. I'm shoveling pig crap uh, to pay rent. And, and I'm meeting some wonderful Christian people. Uh, several just wonderful people. Um, but I already have developed a network as well because I'm an elder in the prison church and, you know, we do Kairos and so on and so forth. So I got a relationship with a lot of these prison ministers. At any rate, I leave the halfway house, go live with my cousin for a year, which was um, amazing that she would even, you know, I mean, I just got a prison. She got a 13-year-old daughter. She's, yeah. You know what I'm saying? She got a reputation. She works for the police department. It's like, yeah. you know, she took a major risk, right, in bringing me into uh, into her home. And and um, that was very, very gratifying. Of course, it wasn't the perfect situation. Sure. So the guy that gets me out of prison, Doug, says, hey, um, God wants you to come live with me. So now that. <laughs> I gotta meet Doug. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So Doug lives in <laughs> Springville, Alabama. This is where they're from. Yeah. Right. Population 3,500, 95% white. Black folks live across the river over here. Yeah. I mean, across the railroad tracks over here in the little hole. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's like uh, he's a Confederate son. Bro, got a Confederate flag, flag flying. It. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm, he, he's got a pickup truck that I got to drive because I ain't got a vehicle. It's got a Confederate bandana hanging, hanging around. So, you know, mm -hmm. hey, what am I going to say? Yeah. You know, dude just told me I could come live with him yeah. rent free and get my feet up under me because I can't get a job. So the police officer, former police officer now calls me to Atlanta and says, hey, uh, I got something for you. Takes me to Home Depot, buys me a lawnmower, gives me a trailer. Uh, I got this truck. I start Victory Lawn Care Service because I know that people need <laughs> their grass cut. Yeah. I ain't got no other skills, right? Yeah. So cutting grass is something. Even then, I didn't know how to cut grass. You know, it was just, I had <laughs> to learn that on the fly. But yeah. yeah, so I was forced into entrepreneurship uh, as a result of of that. And, and Doug gave me a, a wonderful opportunity. I stayed at Doug's house for three and a half years. The address, bro, is 495 Miracle Hills Road. You can't make this stuff up. Wow. Right? You really can't make this stuff up. So I live up there for three and a half years, and then God tells me, by this time I've I've uh, enrolled at UAB as a double major. UAB held up my registration because of my criminal history, which was reasonable. Yeah. However, they made me take a battery of psychological tests. I guess they were trying to make sure I wouldn't be a school shooter. I yeah. Was, I was like, I don't exactly fit the profile, but I'll yeah. take the test. I'll take the test, yeah. right? So I did, and I passed, and they let me in school, and I stayed on the dean's list and I earned the Ullman academic. I was 45 years old, man. I mean, yeah. I had studied psychology. I was a double major, psychology and African-American studies, and I switched to social work. But um, I had to borrow money, yeah. so I borrowed 55 grand ultimately uh, to, to go to school, eat. Now, here's what the situation is. I can't get a job, so I'm cutting grass. Yeah, I'm going to school. Full load, staying on the president's list and dean's list. Then Micah Andrews of the Foundry 
who's a friend of Doug's, yeah. uh, gives me an opportunity to have a part-time job, $9.50 an hour working in the warehouse. It's in Bessemer. I live in Springville. I drive a truck with a trailer and a lot. So yeah. that thing's getting about 13 miles a gallon. I'm 40 miles. You know, well, probably 80 miles both ways. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just working for gas at $9 and 50 cents an hour part time, yeah. but I'm on the grid yeah. and the foundry had a tremendous opportunity for me to add value. Adding value had become a monster for me yeah. because if people going to want you in their life, then you got to be bringing something, sure. not because everybody wants to take something from you, but because people just do not enjoy having takers, yeah. even though we have to tolerate it, givers or, or people who are willing to add value where the weaknesses are, are the most valuable people we have. And so I wanted to always be that. So I saw some weaknesses in their program at the foundry and I started adding some um, some tweaks. And uh, 11 months later, I'd received two promotions and become a full-time counselor. So I'm a full-time counselor, right? I got, I'm making $26,000 a year, and I'm happy like you would not believe, bro. I'm on yeah. I got my own business. right? I'm going to school. I got a $26,000 a year job. And then I was recruited to the Birmingham Violence Reduction Initiative because, um, you know, there's certain things that uh, were – uh, certain qualifications that were necessary for that particular position. So I had the academic acumen and I had the street cred with my, sure. with my criminal history. And so I became the first person, the first male to be deploy a um, violence reduction strategy. I didn't really know a whole lot about it. Right. But I was learning. It was an opportunity to learn. The program was cut out when we got a new mayor. But after that, uh, or during that period of time, I also founded my nonprofit organization, which was NUMA Gallery. You probably know Numa is the Greek word for spirit. And I had, you know, discerned that there were more ways to see God than our churches <laughs> yeah. had. So that was where the gallery came in. So there was a spirit gallery. And our mission statement is reducing violence, recidivism, and family dysfunction while building community. Because I had learned by that point that the only way to change community is to do it from the inside out. Every effort that we've ever made from the outside in has failed. Now, we don't say that it's failed. We, have, we all say that we're doing great work, the trillions of dollars that go into it. just say, keep the money, keep the money coming. <laughs> Everything's great. Yeah. But <laughs> it can't be working. You yeah. know, like I said, the numbers that I quoted earlier, top in homicides, top five and blighting at the bottom of the education spectrum that that you know the, where's our money going what what yeah. good is it doing if we're getting so my estimation was that we're not building people which is what jesus did you know we emphasize structures or infrastructure you know put the money give them a house uh you know give them a job right or, yeah you know, we, we've got to do is change people's minds and get them invested in their own revitalization because it mm. won't happen from the outside in yeah so I started to do that. We, we started, uh, I admitted this strategy called putting the neighbor back in neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, based on the scripture. Yeah. Uh, you love your neighbor like you love yourself. Sure. 30% of Americans plus have never spoken to their neighbor. That's over 100 million people that are not using their social influence to have any impact in their community. But they want something better to happen. Well, that's just not reasonable. If, if you're a God type person, then you wear the responsibility that it has to happen through you, not from somebody else. And the fact that we are not working cohesively to do that in, in conjunction with one another, adding our gifts and talents and strategizing to make these things happen. You know, it's a, we can do a lot better. Yeah. I'm that's not going to drag. I'm just saying we can do a lot better sure. emphasizing those things. So that's what I did. I started inviting people to my home to do fish fries, right? Fish and loaves, right? Yeah. <laughs> do fish fries. When I bought my house, and this is important, I think. So after three and a half years with Doug, now I've been out of prison four and a half years. I bought my first car two and a half years out of prison. It was time to buy my house. So four and a half years out of prison, I buy this house and God tells me to buy it in the neighborhood that has the highest number of homicides. Who does that? Yeah. Right. So I find Ainsley Highlands just so happened to be my neighborhood where, where, you know, yeah. my folks come from. Right. So, um, I buy the house there, $58,000. It's nice, you know, dwelling, you know, I'm a single guy and, and, uh, you know, it's 1200 square feet. It's, uh, I'm thinking, wow. I got a 750 credit score, 760 at, at that 59, and uh, I'm doing good, 
right? $31,000 now I'm making, $31,500. I buy this house for $58,000 and I start affecting my strategy. My neighbors don't greet me. They probably peeped out the window and hope I didn't have any bad kids. (laughs) But I went and knocked on their doors. I aggressively pursued relationships with them. Didn't wait for them to come to me. I went and knocked on their doors, introduced myself, and started trying to add value on my street. Right. And so uh, a year later or so, they asked me to run for city council. That's how that's how I'm on parole for a homicide, bro. Yeah. Right. That's how hungry people were for leadership uh, in, in my community. And I think that people are still hungry that way for people to reach out to them to add value. So that's how I started developing, you know, my credibility in my community. And so for five years from 2017 to 2022, that's what I did. I pushed you know, putting the neighbor back in neighborhood, putting the neighbor back in neighborhood. We had events, um, you know, a Numa Gallery was trying to, you know, establish our footprint. And then uh, in uh, 20, early 2022, um, Mark Martin calls me to a conversation. Mark Martin's the founder of Build Up. Calls me into a conversation with Richard Simmons. George Floyd was murdered in 2020, and a lot of people were affected by that. Uh, people in what we call over the mountain were affected by that. Richard was one of those people uh, who uh, he believed God said, Hey, you got to do something for the poor euphemism black. Yeah. But what do you do when you've been ministering to white men for 20 years? He's the founder of the center for executive leadership. Yeah. All businessmen. You've been ministering to, to rich, rich old white men for 20 years. And uh, now God is saying, you got to do something for the poor. Right. But what do you do? I mean, the the narrative is them people ain't gonna let you come down there. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, and they're right. You know, yeah. in, in a lot of ways, they're right. But Mark uh, had built a school called Build Urban Prosperity, and I had fallen in love with it. And and um, he knew that I was invested in my community in Inslee. So he says, "Hey, we know we got a bunch of um, uh, rich old white men talking about what's good for black people. What we're gonna do good for black people." And uh, that ain't never worked out for, for yeah. nobody. So, so I came in and I sat there for basically three meetings, three weeks, and without saying very much at all. And uh, I listened to them, and they, I thought they had some good idea foundationally. Um, and then Richard asked me, "What do, What do you do?" You know, three weeks into yeah. it, Richard looks and said, "What do you do?" I, and I told him about Numa Gallery, and um, he was like, "Oh my God, that's that's what we want to do." And so basically we formed uh, Renew Birmingham as a collective impact model that does three things differently than most other nonprofit organization. One, back to Jesus, we don't bite off the whole area. Yeah. 197,000 people in the city of Birmingham can't serve them, can't serve them all, can't even begin to find the people that need the services because you don't have the staff yeah. to be able to do that. So I look at Jesus. Jesus says, stay in Israel, right? And don't leave Israel until you've covered it. So what I did was shrunk the service area. Instead of saying we're going to serve the whole city of Birmingham, we're going to start in a small area, saturate that area. And if we have success, then we can replicate it around the city. So this is what shrinking the service area does for you. It lets you know exactly where you need to go, what the doors you need to knock on are. 8,000 residents in Inslee, Inslee Highlands, Wylam, and Tuxedo. You can actually canvas that area in four months. Saturate that whole area. Mail outs, phone calls, knocks on doors. So we send people out to knock on doors. This allows immediate access to anyone who needs it. It also allows you to collect data along the way. Are you a homeowner? Are you a renter? Are you church? What do you like about Inslee? So on and so forth, right? Second thing is that aggressive pursuit, actually. First is the shrinking of the service area so that you can aggressively pursue clients and volunteers. So those are two, two things. Yeah. Third thing is the, the, the probably the most important in my mind, at least, is that we don't give services away. So remember, I said to Jesus, everybody says that salvation is free, but I said, Jesus doesn't say that. You know, Jesus says it's going to cost you, right? yeah. <laughs> you know, so I like that. So, so we say, uh, if we provide a service for you, if you take advantage, now we're here for free, 
And you had an opportunity. I'm going to knock on your door, going to give you the opportunity to get an assessment, all that stuff. But if you get a service for every $100 that I spend on a service for you, you got to give me five hours of volunteer service beforehand. Now, that's not very popular with a culture that's dependent. Yeah. Right. So you have fear, apathy, and dependency are the major attitudes. However, for those who do get invested in that, then we can put those people with those hours working together in cohorts to eliminate blight, to canvas with us, to volunteer in the school. Plus, they're creating culture amongst themselves naturally, organically, by working together. And the cohesion affects the general culture. The more that you get people invested in those service, in, in working for those services, one, you get them out of the sense of, um, you know, they, they keep their dignity. There's, there's no, no, we're not turning them into beggars. You know, they're, they're not, um, dependent. So you inspire self-determination and you inspire a kind of healthy pride in your community because you're working together to do things for your community. And ultimately what we're trying to do is create community cohesion so that we can have collective efficacy. So the question would be, well, how do you provide services, Jarrell? Well, there's 400 nonprofit organizations that already exist. So we don't have to reinvent that wheel. We can pay those organizations per client, per service to do it in our service area. So we're immersed in the community, very walkable community, accessible to everyone. 11,000 square feet. I got teaching space. I got event space. I got, you know, whatever it is that you need, office space, whatever it is you need to do the service here. We got it. It It's counseling, financial literacy, Bible study, whatever it is that you want to do. I got the space for you to do it, but do it here. Right. So that everybody has access. And if so, be we have to transport somebody. We got bus passes or we can put them in a vehicle and and uh, and take them there. So ultimately, what we feel like is over time, you affect the culture in the school by working with the students same way. You know, the students uniforms, underserved school, under under uh, uh, resourced. Okay, the students have two thousand dollars that they had to pay for per uniform. All right. Let's get them working out here with us. We'll teach them about community and civic responsibility and put them to work on blight elimination. We get their uniforms, but we've also instilled in them the idea that you have to go do it. It's not something that's going to come to you. And so these next generations of residents come out of these schools. And so you can affect the culture for generations if you do this the right way. In the first three quarters that we rolled out services, January 23rd, January 2023, we experienced a 45 percent decrease in homicides. That's phenomenal. I wasn't expecting that. Can't take credit for it. We can only say that we were there when it happened. However, if you look at the rest of the city, it was on fire. Yeah. Uh, you know, so so if we do this again like that, then we know it's us. We go, we're going to know it's us. Right. Yeah. So that's what we're pushing for this year is to have enough resources. Uh, we need about a million two. Uh, to put people on the ground. See, what we're doing is not just providing the resource. That's easy. You know, having paying an organization per client, per service, that's easy. But getting the residents to create cohesion amongst themselves and get invested in, in doing the work, that takes putting actual resources in people's hands. They're working for the resource, but we're putting the resources in their hands to affect the culture, using their social influence to contact the people and create a movement of revitalization versus uh, coming in and saying, hey, here's some housing. Here's some. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> well, I'm going to keep my eyes peeled on this, man. I'm very interested. In, uh, I actually had, I mean, it was a couple of years ago, Richard Simmons came in as probably right as the thing was launching, it sounds like, right when we were launching. Um, Richard Simmons came in, we interviewed him, um, and he was he, he was another guy that said, hey, you got to meet Terrell. Um, and uh, he was kind of telling me a little bit about it, and it was intriguing. Um, but, man, I mean, that's incredible because that, that it is. It's a question that everyone kind of wonders. I think there's a lot of people that want to do good, historically the solution has been throw money at it throwing money at it doesn't work we know that okay then what does work because the poverty poverty now is not what poverty was then like so my my family grew up in west or my dad grew up in west Monroe, louisiana and that was back when poor people were skinny right it was <laughs> yeah. right it was it was it was an actual yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. access to you know whatever it was it was a different thing Poverty now, it's, it really is. It's, it's a cultural, it's a mindset. It's a, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's different. And so we don't know, we don't know how to treat it. We don't know, we don't know what to do. And so, um, you know, this is, you know, it's extremely encouraging, especially I'm very interested to see year two. I, I, I'm going to, 
lean towards if I was a gamble man, and I'm not. If I was, I would bet that your guys' results are going to be as good, if not better. I, w- I think that God wants that, you yeah. know, and, and uh, I'm going to always defer to to that being because, you know, I know how imperfect we are. And yeah. um, you know, me, I know how, sure. you know, I mean, I wasn't I didn't go to school to be a CEO. Yeah, you know, I, didn't, I didn't go. You know, I don't know anything that, about, too. Yeah. yeah. So you know, we, there's a learning curve on this thing. I know. All right. You know, so um, but the concept you know, whether I'm here or not, if we can teach people the concept and it's actually biblical, yeah. you know, if, if you just look at what Jesus is doing and do it the same way, that's what this model has sprung up around. Now, you know, we don't, we're not, you know, out there waving the Jesus flag. Right? Sure. We're, we're saying, Hey, you know, if you, if you come here, it's going to affect your community. And the model comes from your Bible. Yeah. And what we find again is that most people are not reading the Bible, which I think is a real hindrance to any type of. And there's not a huge them. resistance to the Bible and Jesus though, probably in those communities, there's probably an openness, but it's a misunderstanding of what's in the book. Yeah. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah. Yeah. Well now it's becoming worse. Uh, people are more resistant because of the um, highly publicized failings of churches. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's hard to, even me, you know, somebody who's been a seminary, who's ordained and, and, you know, who preaches, I preached a sermon at, um, at a small church in Wylam a while back. It'll go unnamed. Yeah. Um, but I preached it on communion. It was the first Sunday black people do, you do uh first Sunday communion. Yeah. Right. And I learned that communion was, you know, first Sunday, basically you come get your free pass for the rest of the month. Right. You get yeah. washed on clean. Check your heart. Yeah. You know, and uh, you don't want to be sick and cursed and all that stuff. Right. So, you know, it wasn't that. And, and, and I was teaching people what Paul was talking about in actuality when he talked about the body of Christ. You knew disregarding it. He was talking about these people that you left, that you ate before they came. You don't have any in regard for the body of Christ. In other words, you don't have the communion that yeah. Christ talked about. And and he opens up the passage by talking about the divisions that are among people. So it would seem clear. Our problem is that oftentimes we'll just pull these passages out. And I, and I've said this before, and I want to keep it in context that the, the, one of the hindrances to people learning what God is saying out of the Bible is chapter and verse. Yeah. Because chapter and verse allows you to pull a scripture out of its context and interpret it in light of itself versus interpret it in light of the actual context. Correct. Written. Yeah. And so communion has been twisted sure. to the degree that, you know, when I finished preaching, people weren't sure whether they should take communion or not. And they shouldn't have been, you know, they should have been unsure because if you don't have the types of relationships with each other that are cohesive, where you're feeling like you're part of these people, that this is your family, that you're on a movement together, that you're a part of the kingdom in in, uh, that cohesion, then you might be disregarding the body of Christ. If you've got, if you've got, you know, issues with the church across the street. If you've got issues with the people in your church, you don't like your pastor, you don't have a relationship, yeah. enough relationship with, the, you know, y'all just in the same building singing songs and, and listening to a seminar. Well, that's not yeah. communion, right? Yeah. You know, so anyway, I don't want to preach. <laughs> no, this is good, man. I can tell, um, man, there's so many rabbit trails we could go on, but I wanted to get the core of your story and the core of your mission um, and, you know, have you back and we can go down all the rabbit trails of the Iran Contra, Ronald Reagan. Uh, what was the guy's name in Arkansas? Barry, um, gosh, he was the guy that was like flying Cessnas for Escobar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, ah, and then they shoot him in the head. his name. Yeah, they, the Tom name. Cruise movies about it. It's like American something. I got to go back and see that. Yeah, so, but yeah, it's it, it, it unpacks that entire thing, yeah. right? It's insane. And well, then, I, you know, I lived, you know, through a significant portion of it, 1985, I graduated yeah. high school. By that time, Colors is out, the, the yeah. movie, and uh, I'm in Daytona Beach. I moved to Daytona Beach. So I, up I-95, most of the cocaine in the country was coming up uh, through I-95. And there was this, this state trooper named Bob Vogel. I'll never forget him. Uh, he made 60 Minutes because he was able to 
he had a profile. If you were driving north on 95 and doing the speed limit in a rental car. They knew you were a drug dealer. They knew you were a drug dealer. And, and, he, <laughs> didn't, and he didn't uh, He didn't just ask to search your vehicle. Yeah. Because, right? you know, they were sophisticated with hiding stuff. Yeah. So he had a toolbox. If you let him search your vehicle, he would literally dismantle. It was going it. down. Yeah, yeah. Dismantle the vehicle on the side <laughs> of the road. And he was busting people left and right. And, you know, nobody ever asked the question. If all these, because, you know, it was, you know, super predator and all that stuff came out of speaking of these black drug dealers and gang yeah. members and so on and so forth. But nobody ever asked the question, where all these ignorant, poorly educated black kids get all this cocaine from? And where do they get these guns? They don't have contacts in Colombia. Yeah. They, they don't they don't have contacts in Russia and Germany to get their guns. Right. You know, yeah. They can't even speak English barely. So. so yeah. Where is this coming from? Nobody ever asked, yeah. you know, and so you got a stigma and then you get a culture that comes out of that stigma. And hip hop is a part of that. Not that everything about hip hop is bad, but, you know, a what lot we of see. The, yeah. A lot yeah. of the stuff that we've come comes from them dumping cocaine into our communities. And uh, yeah, under the great communicator. Gosh. <laughs> it's insane, man. Well, I can definitely tell we're going to have some some good conversations in the future. Uh, I'll probably get canceled after. No, this. that's no, okay. I, hey, <laughs> I stay canceled. YouTube kicked me off. Oh really? Uh, yeah. So yeah. I'm only broadcasting video on Rumble. Well, I guess uh, pod, Apple Podcasts. But um, we hit uh, about 25 minutes longer than the podcasts are normally. But I'm glad we did because it was a story that needed to be told. But what that means, we were not going to do a behind the scenes or an overtime this week. That was amazing. Thank you for for sharing the the rawness, the realness. Um, everything you learned and just open it up and, and sharing your story, man. I, I appreciate the opportunity, yep. bro. Thank awesome. you. Terrell Jones, thank you. All right, guys, that'll wrap it up. Uh, and there will not be a behind the scenes. And until <laughs> next time, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry.